Matthew 27, 57 says, When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir... We remember that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days, I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. As we look back to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, I think it would be helpful for us to orientate ourselves to the geography of these events. We are talking about a land thousands of miles away. Many of us have never been there, and even those who have been there, the last two millennia have changed uh, the structures a bit. And so as we think about that fateful night, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus gathers with his 12 disciples in an upper room in a building inside the city walls of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. After finishing this meal, Jesus then leads his disciples out through the streets of Jerusalem and he takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is outside the eastern wall. He crosses the brook Kidron. He goes up the Mount of Olives. It is there that he pours out his heart and soul before the Father, where he prays, not my will, but thine be done. It is also there where Judas, who has betrayed him, brings the soldiers, and they arrest Jesus, and they take him back down the hill, cross the brook, into the city, to the high priest's house, where they have a kangaroo court, a made-up trial, where they accuse him and they condemn him. Early in the morning, they take him to Pilate, to Pilate's judgment hall, which is also inside of the city. They demand that Rome execute him as a criminal. When questioned what his crimes are, they said, we want to have brought him to you if he was not a criminal. Pilate when he discovers that Jesus is from Galilee, makes a political move and he sends him to Herod because Herod was uh, over that region. Herod examines Jesus, finds nothing of guilt with him and sends him back to Pilate. Yet the Jewish high priests and religious leaders are indignant and uh, resistant to Pilate's compromise and they demand that they that Pilate executes Jesus. 
And so, after Jesus has been beaten and scourged, he is then taken back out of the city. This time, he goes to a place called Golgotha, or Calvary. It's a skull-like mountain that sits outside the walls of the city on the west side. It is a place of prominence where the Romans would perform their crucifixions. It was a sign to all who would come into that place to know that there is a Roman law and that if you break it, you will be punished accordingly. But John gives us one more bit of geographical information that is pertinent to the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. John says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because the Jews' preparation day, since the tomb was nearby. A casual reading might seem as if that was happenstance. But we know that there is nothing that was left up to chance in the redemption that God was providing through Jesus Christ. Although no one else may have known it, and when the Romans chose that place as their place of execution, they may not have thought about it, but God, in his sovereignty, already had the tomb picked out where Jesus would be buried when he, was di when he died. This mysterious tomb then becomes the focal point for the next three days. Think about it. For the last three years, Jesus has been constantly mobile. He has been traveling from city to town to village. He has been preaching. He has been healing. He has been discipling. He has traveled from north to south and back to north again on multiple occasions. But now, after the cross, Jesus is isolated in this one location, shielded by the rock door that is covering the tomb. And the tomb becomes the focal point of this story. For you and I, it passes in a few verses. But for all of those who were present, these were the most excruciating three days of their lives. The reader is made aware of a few facts about this mysterious tomb. The first is that it's a borrowed tomb. It wasn't Jesus's. The second is that it was a guarded tomb. No other tomb had a guard posted by it. And then the third is that it became an empty tomb. I'd like to speak to you for the next few minutes about this tomb. First of all, it is a substituted tomb. If we notice there in verses 57 through 61, this was not Jesus' tomb. This was Joseph's tomb. There happened to be a man of Arimathea who was there, who was a follower of Christ. We're told, but secretly, he was not openly following Jesus until this turning point and it is at this point when he sees Christ die on the cross that his faith is emboldened and that he is no longer ashamed to identify with this one that is called the Messiah and so he goes to Pilate and uses his religious and political influence to request the body of Jesus because the bodies of those criminals could have been disposed of any way the Roman government saw fit. And so Pilate grants his request. Think about how important burials were in those ancient times for a moment. 
because there were no means of preserving the corpse for common people. There was no refrigeration. There was no embalming unless you were a rich pharaoh from Egypt. And so when someone passed away in that day and time, we did not wait two days, three days, seven days to bury the body. It had to go into the ground as quickly as it possibly could. Not to be gross, but the body begins to decompose within hours of its death. And if it is left out unattended, unprepared, it will decay in a way that is horrid and something that no one wants to see their loved one go through. And so people made preparations for burial. Like Joseph of Arimathea, we're told that he had a tomb that was dug for him. We're not told how old Joseph is. But it doesn't seem to be that he is at the verge of death. It doesn't seem to be that he is nearly about to die. It is something that he is planning ahead for because he knows that death is coming to all. As you think about the significance of making those preparations for burial after death, just consider that the first property that Abraham secured in the promised land was a burying place for his family all the way back in Genesis 23. It was not a home place. It was not a farm. It was not a temple. It was not anything else. The first piece of property that Abraham secured in the land that God promised to him was a place to bury his family. In fact, it was the only real estate that the Jews owned in Canaan for the next four centuries. If we're paying attention, that's significant. There's something to this that people make preparations for their burial. As a matter of fact, as you go on and you think through what happened after Abraham, we remember that, that Jacob's body was transported from Egypt back there when he died so that he could be buried in that place. Furthermore, before Joseph dies, he makes his family swear that they'll not leave his bones in Egypt, but that they will take his bones back to that place to be buried. Yet Jesus, who came to this earth for the express purpose of dying, made not one preparation for his burial. In his divine sovereignty, he knew he was going to die. He knew when he was going to die. And yet, he did not dig a tomb. He did not choose a burial plot. He did not negotiate for a piece of property for his body to be buried on. Jesus used a substitute tomb. And I say he used a substitute tomb because... It was a substitutional death. Not only was Jesus buried in Joseph's place, Jesus died in Joseph's place. Hebrews 2.9 says that he tasted death for every man. And so as we think about the focal point of this story where it is at a tomb, we must recognize that it's a substituted tomb. It is not his tomb. It is not a permanent tomb. It was just a borrowed tomb. He would just need it a couple of days, and then he would vacate it. 
Not only do we notice that it's a substituted tomb, but we see that it's a sealed tomb. Not only did they seal that tomb with a stone, as was a natural process, just to keep any animals from going in there and, uh, and devouring the loved one's body, but we also see that the Pharisees came and said, hey, he said something that, that we're concerned about, that, that Jesus Long before he died, said that he would rise again in three days. We think that, that, that there may be a plot that if we don't secure that tomb, that those disciples could come by night and steal that body and blow this story up and make it worse than what it's been and, and declare that he's risen from the dead. And so Pilate grants them their wish. He gives them Roman guards. And he says, make it as sure as you can. This is a stark reminder that the grave is inescapable for all mankind. Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that we all have an unavoidable appointment with death. It says this is appointed unto man once to die. And once a person goes to the grave, they never come out again. Literally, the grave is sealed when you and I go into it. No one can walk out under their own power, nor can anyone outside of the grave bring them back to life. Even if Jesus' disciples could have stolen his body, they could not have brought him back to life. I say this to you, death did its best to seal Jesus in the tomb, but the grave could not hold him. Isn't that astounding? I mean, it couldn't just be a normal burial. It couldn't just be place him in the tomb, put the stone there, no, no, God had to up the ante. He knew that there would be naysayers. He knew that there would be doubters. He knew that there would be people who would be skeptical that Jesus rose again from the dead and says he superintended throughout his providential leading to cause them to request a guard to be set outside of that tomb to seal it and to guard it. And in spite of the guard that is there, Jesus still comes out of the grave. And next, we find not just an empty tomb. I say we find a satisfied tomb. The story goes on in Matthew 28, and it says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow, and for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. When those women went to the cemetery early that Sunday morning, to their shock, they found that the tomb was open 
and that it was empty. What does that mean? What does it mean that the tomb was open and empty? Well, you know, there's a neat little verse all the way back in Proverbs. And we know that God inspired the entire Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We know that God had a plan of redemption that's been unfolding throughout human history. We know that God prophesied that he would send uh, the seed of the woman to bruise the head of the serpent all the way back at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. We see pictures of Jesus all throughout Genesis. We hear the prophecy from Moses that God is going to send another prophet like him who will be a deliverer. We see prophecies of Jesus in Psalm 22 and in Jeremiah and in Isaiah. And so I can't help but think that as I look back at Proverbs chapter 30, verses 15 and 16, God is giving us some insight into what the empty tomb means. Proverbs 30, 15 says there are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things, say not, it is enough. Number one, the grave. And the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and fire saith not, it is enough. Did you notice that number one on the list of things that are never satisfied is the grave? Think about that for a moment. That's proverbial wisdom. The tomb consumes everybody. Period. No exclusions. No exemptions. The tomb keeps consuming every single person. There are over 7 billion people alive on the planet today. Sociologists tell us that it's estimated that there have been over 100 billion people that have lived on the earth throughout history. Do you know that they all go to the grave and that the grave never says that's enough? Whoa, 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 a billion, that's all I can handle. Two billion, no, that's all I can handle. Seven billion, that's all I can handle. A hundred and seven billion, no, the grave is never satisfied. All it ever does is consume life. But Jesus walked out of the grave because he satisfied the requirements of death. He did what nobody else could do. He faced off with death and he won. He came out victorious. In Hosea, that great book on redemption, God made a promise through the prophet when he said in Hosea 13, 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. O God made a threat through the prophet Hosea. And he was threatening death and he was threatening the grave. And he was saying there's coming a day when I am going to be the death of death. There's going to be a day when I ransom the grave. There's going to be a day when I satisfy all of the requirements and I liberate my people from the grave. What a blessed threat. I like threats like that. God declared that he would conquer the enemy that conquered all mankind. 
this enemy called death that, had, that all had fought but none had defeated was about to meet its match in Jesus Christ. Do you know why Jesus went through what he went through without any resistance? Have you ever thought about that? Why no resistance? I mean, he didn't even pretend to resist. When he's in the garden and the guards come and, and his disciples, if you want to fight, put away your sword. That, that is not what this hour is for. He, he goes without any protest. He stands before the, the, the high priest. They make accusations. He is silent. He does not defend himself. He's taken before Pilate. Pilate says, don't you know that I have power to take your life? And Jesus makes no defense. He gives no resistance. He is sent to the Roman guards where he is beaten and mocked and scourged and not once is there ever any indication that he struggles or he resists or he tries to fight back. He did that because he is allowing death to give it its best shot. Here I am. Do your worst. And it could not hold him in the grave. He was allowing death to give it its best shot at keeping him in the grave. But Jesus said this to a mourning sister one time in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you understand? Jesus said that so that we can say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, Jesus satisfied all of the righteous requirements of God and he walked out of that tomb leaving it empty. He is risen, and he is alive forevermore. Would you bow with me? Oh God, we praise you and we celebrate the resurrection. and We understand that even though we have celebrated this every year for the last 2,000 years, that it is no less a miracle, that its glory has not diminished, and that the miraculous power that it took to resurrect Christ from the dead has not lost one gleam. Father, I pray that today it would be afresh and anew to us and that we would understand that something magnificent and of great magnitude took place that day when you satisfied the grave and you walked out alive forevermore promising, guaranteeing, and offering to us eternal life. If it were not for the resurrection, we would have no hope. But because you are risen, we will rise. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.